Welcome to the Marcia Miyake Show, where our mission is to share thought-provoking ideas, practical tools, and tangible strategies to up-level your life, business, and relationships. I'm your host, Marcia Miyake, leadership and emotional intelligence consultant, executive coach, and conscious mama of two. Through solo episodes and interviews with experts in the medical, research, business, and spiritual fields, this show helps you to shift from the illusion that success in one area of your life means failure in another to the understanding that you truly get to have it all. Let's get started. Thank you so much for making the time to come on our show. I'm super excited. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm I'm honored and uh, appreciate the opportunity to be on here. Oh, it's my pleasure. So for our listeners, Carlos came and did a masterclass inside of the Academy and we got such amazing feedback. I knew I just had to bring him on the podcast. So what he did inside of the Academy was an actual teaching piece. And with this, I'd love just to get to know you a little bit better. And I really would love our audience just to understand your background. Um, So we'll cut to the chase. Carlos spent 16 years. Is that correct? 16 years. 17. 17 years. Oh my gosh. 17 years in prison and what he's been able to do with his life um, post that experience has been incredible, but I really actually would love to go back. Talk to me about like your early years. I don't know. You know how some people have like really vivid memories of their early childhood. I personally don't, but take me back to when you do have memory and like what that was like in your home. Yeah. Um, so I grew up, um, in a good neighborhood, um, uh, in the suburban neighborhood. Uh, both my parents came out here from Ecuador, um, for, I'm a first generation American. Uh, they both came out here like most people do when they come out here, to, you know, searching for a better life. Um, so they came out, they came out hard workers. They were both in the medical field and from the ages one through 12, you know, everything was good. I never worried about anything like how I was going to eat, where I was going to sleep, never worried about the things that later on hit me, you know, like a ton of bricks out of nowhere. Um, Everything was given to me. Um, I went to Catholic school. I played baseball. That was like my dream to become a professional baseball player. Um, I looked up to my dad. He was, you know, he was like a superhero to me. Uh, Me and my mother were really close. Like, I was just clinging to her leg all day, every day. And I just loved, loved her so much. And, um, and so everything was good. It was kind of like the picture perfect situation. I had an older sister, you know, she grew up good. And, um, and then everything changed about 12. I mean, that's when everything started. My father, he stopped coming home nights. My mother would tell us he was, um, spending the night at a friend's house or he was staying at work because he had to work the night shift. And, always um coming with different excuses and we believed it and so after a while months in and months out he just stopped coming around um you know less and less so um one day um my mother sat me and my sister down at the kitchen table and told us that he wouldn't be coming back anymore at all and didn't really give us an explanation why although we wanted to know um and i don't know if it's because of our culture you know in in a latin culture a lot of times we don't open up about things like that um, things that they're ashamed of in the family, people don't speak on, or people 
told lies um, for other people in the family. And so we didn't know. And all I know is that my father um, left. And so immediately I started to blame myself and I felt like it was my fault. Um, and my mother immediately started to go into a depression, which she ended up finding herself deep in one um, and forced to take on two jobs to provide for us. So she was, um, you know, gone all the time. She disconnected from me because of the depression. She put a wall up. So I lost my dad, lost my mom pretty much. And, um, and then my sister got pregnant, 16 years old. She got pregnant and that was even more pressure for my mother. And so for me, I felt that like, just, I didn't feel like it was home no more. I didn't feel like I needed to be there. And I felt like there was something for me outside of that home, which I hadn't really left because I was kind of sheltered. Um, and so I ran away when I was 13 years old, um, ran away from home into the streets about 30 minutes from where I live was in a very bad neighborhood, um, which is like it is in Los Angeles. One minute you can be in an amazing neighborhood. Next minute you're in a horrible neighborhood. So mm -hmm. um, I ran away and I ended up in a bad neighborhood. I ended up getting taken in by the wrong group of men. We were, they were gang members. All, most of them had already been to prison. They were already involved in criminal activity. And the one thing we had in common was we didn't have our fathers. Right. One thing that we had in common is that we were broken and that was how we bonded. And so for they became like my my father figures and my brothers and the male figures in my life to fill that void that left. Um, and so um, I just became fully involved in that life. And I was homeless. You know, at first they um, they didn't have a place to me to, for me to stay as far as house. But there was an abandoned car in the back of apartment complex where I used to sleep and it was broke down. And I would sleep in there. And then in the morning, I would go <clears throat> and shower in my friend's house when his parents went to work um, and eat and stuff like that. And I did that at 14 years old for a while. I was almost a whole year. Um, by the time I was 14 years old, I was addicted to drugs. I was addicted to alcohol. I was a gang member. And I was fully involved in criminal activity, doing everything I can from, you know, started with stealing, selling drugs, being taught how to do all that. And, um, about I was about um, 15 years old at the time and uh, living in the streets for place to place. And I started to make more money. So now I was able to like rent hotels and stuff like that. And But um, during the process, I met my best friend. His name was Chris. And he was like became he became like a big brother to me, like almost a father figure. He showed me how to survive in the streets. And um, I looked up to him. And when he was when I was 16 years old and he was 19, he committed suicide in front of me in a drug house um killed himself like five feet from me and he was he was on drugs we were all on drugs and he picked up the gun and pulled it put it to his head and pulled the trigger and killed himself um and that was when like everything just went from like bad to really bad for me because i remember when he picked up the gun and he put it to his head like everything in me was trying to like tell him to stop don't do that like and i felt it but i didn't you know i didn't have the confidence within me to speak up i didn't have you know that feeling like i could i, I just wanted to be accepted and i felt that i didn't want to look weak to him um and so i didn't say nothing and you know so i started and started to feel a lot of guilt and shame for that started to develop um ptsd and, and i didn't know and in retrospect i know now but you know i had nightmares and um, couldn't sleep at night, started to feel like I needed to be really violent toward people. 
um, to channel what I was feeling. And after this happened, I never received any type of help. There was no, you know, psychological help. There was no medicine. It was just deal with it, you know, and I self-medicated um, with drugs and I got worse. And so um, I started to do armed robberies. And eventually, I, by the time I was 18 years old, I went on the run and then I was arrested for uh, multiple counts of armed robbery and um, was fighting for my life. Uh, they tried to give me life in prison because I was a gang member and then, you know, the crimes were violent. And um, I remember that it was like a day before trial. They wouldn't, they wouldn't give me no deal. And I was like trying to get a deal. Uh, and they were like, no, we're going to give you life. And so day before trial, um, the district attorney came to me and he offered me a deal for 20 years with two strikes. And back in those days, two strikes at a young age was pretty much like a life sentence. So, um, because you go in prison and do one thing, you you get you spend the rest of your life in there. So, but I took it, you know, I took the 20 years because there was a little chance that I'd get out one day. Um, but as soon as I entered prison, you know, it, I just became even worse. Um, oh. And I'll stop there because that's a whole nother journey. Yeah. But oh I just my wanted gosh. To give, yeah. I just wanted wow. to give you that First of all, what just happened. You. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much for sharing that. And I want to know a little bit about like what type of personality were you as a child? Like you said, you like grew up in a nice neighborhood. You had the safety of your parents. You felt that safety, and that's so important for those foundational years. So you had that. And then you said that you didn't really ex like have experience of like the outside world out of your like family mm -hmm. unit and like your neighborhood and stuff. Yeah. So were you, would you describe yourself as a child, shy child, outgoing? Like what was your personality like growing yeah. up? Yeah. I, I, you know, I was, when I was really young, I remember I was really um, just like a clown. You know, I was really happy all the time. I was a clown. I used to always play around and joke. And then as I started to get older, um, probably like about maybe eight or nine, 10, I remember I started to feel, um, you know, just like less confidence in myself. You know, I started to get really shy. I started to get really quiet. I would pretend to be sick on days that I had to present in front of um, the class because I was so, you know, ashamed of like who I was. Um, and, you know, a lot of that, a lot of that came because of like the way that I looked. I didn't really like the way that I looked. And um, I don't know where that came from, but I know I remember feeling that way that and maybe it was because I was bullied at a, as a kid um you know a lot and um like i said i used to tell my mom about it but i, I was always like well just, you know if he bullies you you bullies him back that's what i was taught um, but it didn't work so maybe that was a huge reason why that i felt that way about myself but um yeah i remember just i had friends but i was really um you know not a confident uh, person at the time and so that's how I grew up. And the only thing that I felt that I was good at was baseball. And so I felt comfortable there. But at school, and even though I got straight A's, I I felt that, um, you know, I never really fit in. I, I remember being like, um, just happy to be home and stuff like that. And and that's where my mother came in, you know. <clears throat> so were, were you someone that was like in your head a lot? Because mm -hmm. when you were saying that you used to pretend to be sick, like that was me. I hated to talk. Yeah. At, in I was like I would be shaking in class like so scared that if the teacher might pick yeah. me to read because I couldn't read and I was like oh my gosh everyone's gonna know yeah. I can't read <laughs> yeah I was like so terrified 
Um, but I was really in my head a lot. So I was very insecure. I overthought everything. I'm like, oh, everybody's looking at me. It was just like a lot of that. Was there any of that happening for you? Yeah, for sure. Definitely. I used to feel that way all the time. I used to hate to have to be um, called upon and have to like, you know, read and do the same stuff. And, um, you know, just just going back and like knowing what I know now, I think that as a parent, um, it's one of the biggest one of the greatest gifts you can give anybody is exposure and just to like expose your kids to um opportunities to challenge themselves you know to step out of their comfort zone and to um and to show them you know give them opportunities to fail because they'll grow from that and then talk them through it like explain to them why they failed and how it's okay where i wasn't none of that was was done for me i kind of had to learn that on my own so um yeah i think that's a big reason just being able to communicate and really be hands-on is key for that yeah. Oh my gosh. That's yeah. so huge. I totally agree. Like, you know, I think there's a, the whole move, not necessarily gentle parenting thing, but like as parents, we want to protect our children. We want to be there for them. We want to, you know, like make their pain go away. And that's your natural instinct when you love someone, but that's not the best thing to do to raise resilient children. And yeah. um, I finally got comfortable with the idea that like, yes, I'm supposed to love my kids, but I'm actually supposed to prepare them for life. And preparing yeah. them for life means helping them have that resilience and not just making everything better all the time. And it's challenging as a parent, especially with my son, because he's the little one. I just want to mm -hmm. make it all better. And then like his dad yeah. would be like, don't let him do it. Don't don't zip up his jacket or don't do that. Leave it. Tell him yeah. to go do it himself. And I want to do it. I'm like, he's only three. He's like, he needs to learn. So it's yeah. it's interesting and and I think I totally agree with you on that that we need to put our children in these like um uncomfortable situations and be that safety for them like that they will always have like you felt like you always had that safety of of coming home and um did you just feel that you didn't have enough like things in your early childhood to challenge you to build up that resilience or yeah, I think you... yeah, I think that um, it, it had a lot to do with you know also the way that my parents were raised and, and they were raised to be uh, a certain way, which is to really just kind of like keep keep the kids close and protect them from the outside world because the outside world is dangerous because where they came from was not it was a dangerous place, and so they brought that with them and they try they, they they that influenced me because they did it to me. But um, I think that, you know, had I been out there more and really experienced the world more on my own and explored the world more, then, you know, I would have been able to deal with the adversity that was soon to come, which was my dad leaving. And then also, you know, being able to be stronger, even though I was 13 or, you know, 12, 13, still being able to be stronger for my mom and, and be able to be there for my sister as well. But um, I just, for me, all I knew was just run away. That was just get a getaway. And that was it. Mm, yeah. yeah. I think like, you know, it's probably your masculine energy coming through, but at 12, 13, it's so not your job to be there for your mom. Right. And this is what we see a lot, especially with single moms is we like parentify our, our children. We put so much like pressure on them, not even knowing, right? It's like when we have drama and they see us, like I, I was a single mom when I, when my daughter was very little, 
but I witness it in, in other women where it's like a lot of pressure on the child unknowingly and the child will absorb a lot of that responsibility and you're still a kid at 12. Like you really shouldn't have had any worries at 12, 13. Like your brain was nowhere near fully developed. And so you still needed while you needed that, like, um, you know, pushing into like the discomfort and then having the safety of home at the end of the day, you're still a little boy who really needed a lot of love and support and that masculine presence to shape you into a healthy male. And you had to basically do that on your own when at a time when it was so critical for you because you were going into puberty, which is the time where it's like that um, initiation period of like, you're becoming a man, your body is changing And that's the time where boys need their fathers the most. So let's go back to that point when you realized, okay, dad's not coming back. Do you feel like you felt that? Like, did you, were you like, this is a shock? Like, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, um, it was confusing. It was very confusing at first. And then, um, also just made me feel like that it was my fault because I really, you know, nobody told me otherwise. Um, And I think that's huge. Like if, you know, my mother had not, you know, went through her depression and she was strong enough to deal with that. um, She would have been able to sit down and explain what was going on, you know, and and what, how we were going to deal with it and how everything was going to be okay. And I think that words are powerful. And so, um, just one thing like that telling me that everything was going to be okay could have been the difference between me jumping out the window and running away and not, you know, because I'm in my bed at night when I'm laying there and I'm, you know, not sure what's going to happen. I'm always going to think of my mother telling me things are going to be okay. And I trust that. So, um, you know, as parents, I feel that I, like we have to, you know, we have to communicate with our kids. And even though we feel like we want to shelter them from the problems we're dealing with, like when we're depressed or angry or upset, like I think it's okay to communicate that and tell your kids why you're feeling that and why it happened, but yet how we're going to be okay. That's huge. And I never got that. And so I, and and it was a lot of, and then you start, if you, nobody tells you it's going to be okay. Then you start to, your brain gets to you and you start to feel like it's, it's on you. Um, and, th- and that's, and at 13 years old, my brain was like, didn't know nothing else. So I just started to feel like the, well, maybe I, maybe it's my fault. Maybe I'm the cause of all this pain in the household. So maybe I should leave. And and that's what I did. And yeah, that that's so crazy. And we know that in like child psychology, those early years, you're completely egocentric. So that's why, you know, a child that's like, five, seven, like eight, they, they think everything is the, they're the cause of everything. And I'm so glad that you shared at like 12, 13, you still felt like that. And I think that should be a big light bulb moment for the parents listening of like, yeah, my child, even though they like, they're not little anymore, they still will take it back to themselves yeah. and and blame themselves for it. And I think what you said about your mom, like, you know, so much love and compassion for her because she wouldn't have had the support, you know, growing up to know how to manage her emotions and know what to yeah. do with her emotional well-being. But that really impacted you because because she wasn't able to regulate herself and went into a depression. There was no way that she had the resources to be able to regulate you. And so you felt abandoned like twice. 
which is yeah. I think I think that's a that's a big call to parents to really prioritize their psychological and emotional well-being because your kids feel it and your inability to um, be there for yourself is going to ripple down to your your kids so much so that you felt okay like I'm not supported mm-hmm. here that this isn't safe anymore I'm the problem nobody has told you otherwise and so I'm going to get out of here um that's wow so then when you so you're dealing with the shock of like okay my dad's not coming back now you decide I'm gonna leave I'm the problem like you're obviously it was some kind of like coping mechanism when you actually got out into this world that you were not familiar with what was that like for you were you like just terrified for the first couple of months like what was that transition for you yeah, I was terrified. I, I remember like how I felt. Um and it, it was it was almost like um, you know, like so much of me wanted to just go back home and just, you know, go to my mother and and be back with her. So much of me wanted me, you know, to be to be that, to just go back and say, like, you know, I don't need to be here. But um also um like at a young age, like a lot of boys when they're that age, they're they're looking for something in like excitement. They're looking for, um, you know, they're getting pulled into something. They need that. They need to be able to convey that energy that they're feeling. And for me, I kind of felt that in that life, although it was scary. It was the adrenaline that I felt through that fear was kind of an addictive thing for me. Um, and it just continued to be more and more and more intense as I got deeper into it. And I remember when I used to um, do stuff when I was, in my as a teenager i would feel the, the energy and the adrenaline that i used to feel before doing it became something that i used to continue to chase and um and i think you're gonna your kid your your kids specifically boys are going to get it one way or another they're going to get it from a negative environment or they're going to get it from a positive one which may be something like sports or something that they find um a way to get that um adrenaline fix that they're still going that their teenage minds want and so in a sense like i was like on the fence in the beginning of going back because i was so afraid but then again the fear kind of kept me in it because the fear of the unknown the these feelings like as you said i was changing and in the process of changing um it felt like that this is where i needed to be and then i was just being manipulated too also from the from the males in there too like continuously telling me like this is this is how it is this is where you're going to be this is the life you have to live now. Um, and all those factors uh, kept me there and kept me from, from you know, running away and letting the fear get to me like that. Mm, I think that's a great you know? that you said about the adrenaline yeah. piece. It's like you're, you want to chase the adrenaline. So it's either we can help our kids do it in a healthy way or they're going to find a way to do it anyway. I mean, like even as a woman, I remember growing up, I had the same thing. It's like... <clears throat> I would go and party and like be around guys. Probably I shouldn't be around, but it was, it made me feel almost a little bit alive. Right. Because I was going through a lot. I had all this unprocessed stuff from my childhood. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I also couldn't talk to my mother. She was a beautiful woman. The woman who adopted me is like so beautiful, but she wasn't an open person. Like Mm -hmm. she wasn't someone who would be like, Oh, how are you feeling? Let's talk about it. So I felt like I didn't have anybody to talk to. So even though I didn't enjoy, I never enjoyed drinking or doing drugs yet. I did it all the time because it was just what you did. And 
<clears throat> like you said, like that excitement piece. So I think that was a huge learning for um, our our parents there. Yeah. So then you're basically still like a lot of people would argue that when you were sentenced, you're still kind of a child, you know, and it's interesting, like the legal system where some people are looked at as adults and then some people, you know, are looked at as a child and they're like basically the same age. But from a psychological perspective, you were still a child, like your brain hadn't been fully developed um, and you had been through significant trauma. And now you're they're saying, okay, you're going to be in um, a prison for 20 years. How did that hit you? Did that hit you when you agreed to the deal? Like, did it hit you then or did it actually hit you when you actually went? Yeah, it it hit me um, when I actually got to the prison. I think um, initially when I, like where I was at in, in the county jail, was such a bad environment that I just wanted to get out of there um, and go to prison and whatever. It just, it, it almost like gets you, it almost breaks you to a point where you're just like, all right, I can't do this anymore. I need to go on to something else, even though that's not anywhere better. It's just, I need to get out of here. And, you know, when you want to get out of somewhere, you just want to go, you don't care where that is. Um, and, and so for me, it didn't really hit me until I hit prison. And then I remember walking um, onto the prison yard and, you know, one of the first things that one of the guys told me was like, okay, um, you're coming in, you know, you're young and you're already a gang member. And so now you're going to have to immediately go do things that are violent to, you know, earn your name in here. So they teach you how to make a knife is one of the first things that they do. And then after they teach you how to make a knife, they teach you how to stitch up your own wounds. So when you, you know, if you get stabbed or you get hurt because they tell you, you can't go seek medical help because if you do, then you'll have to tell who did it. And so immediately off the bus, I was like already being fed more and more negative information, but it was survival information in there. And so I took it and I soaked it in and, and I embraced it and I became that person. And, and I, you know, first opportunity that I got, I did something even more violent and continued to go because I knew I had to do that in there to survive. And mm-hmm. so I did that for my first decade in, in prison. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so when these things, like when these, the violence was happening, were you getting caught for them? Or was it something that was like low key, you would do the thing and then like nobody would talk because you're in prison and no, like you talk and there's other consequences. Yeah. So um, when I first went in, uh, you know, back prison, back when I first went in, most of the time when you did something, um, you know, the guards knew about it anyway, and they didn't do anything. But sometimes I did end up going to the hole and I would go into the hole and come back out. And um, a lot of times I didn't get caught. So it was a mixture of everything. But in prison, it's a whole different world. It's whole different rules, different laws, everything. Um, And so, yeah, I was in and out of the hole and, and and, you know, getting in trouble that whole time. Wow. Yeah. What's the dynamics between like the prisoners and the the guards? Is it kind of like, um, is there any kind of like dynamic between them or is it like they do their job and the prisoners do that and there's no like, yeah. I don't know, dynamic, if you know what I mean, like. Yeah. Um, you know, one one of the things I tell people because I go back into the prisons a lot and speak and stuff, and I and they always ask me like, what was the worst thing about prison? And it it's not the food, it's it's not the living conditions as bad as they are. Um, even it's not even being away from home, you know, because at that time I didn't have one. It was um, 
the way that they looked at you and the way that they treated you is like mm. if you know like if somebody just really hates you and they look at you like you're not even human and that feeling and those words that they say and the energy that they give off to me that was that had the most impact on me because it made me feel like I wasn't a human being mm. and then by me feeling that way I started to become more of like an animal like they wanted me to be and then so it's crazy. And then when I went in, I remember running into people who um, had made one mistake in their life and they were in there for the rest of their life. Um, some of them were regular kids. Like, And I tell people when I talk to them, parents, I say, look, your kid is one person, one mistake away from being where I was, you know, um, because I was in there with guys like that who weren't gang members, who didn't live in the streets. They just did. They were drinking and driving, killed somebody and ended up in prison. And now they're in prison getting um, extorted and they're getting um, raped and all kind of stuff right and so I'm like when I went in there and I saw that and I was like here I was this kid grew up in a good neighborhood and all that and I ended up becoming a gang member and, uh, and a lot of reasons why I survived in there is because of that it was like conditioning me getting ready for that mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that anybody can't end up there and so that's why I feel like it's so important to work with kids from everywhere not just underserved communities but even in good communities because they could end up in there too. Amen. I, yeah. I totally, I totally agree for a lot of the reasons that we were saying with the, you know, like if they yeah. don't feel like they have that support system, they could have like the parents could be really wealthy and have amazing jobs and give them all of the things. And they still could end up in a situation like that based on yeah. because they don't feel like they have that support or they feel like they can't talk to to someone or they have some psychological issues that their parents aren't even yeah. aware of because that connection isn't there. Yeah. Um, so you said for the first 10 years, you were like in that life still. And I think it's really interesting that you said that like your gang life prepared you for being in prison and kind of, it kind of saved you there in a way, cause you had the protection and you were, you were primed, you were primed, you were yeah. like ready to, you know, not be the the weakest person there. So what was that transition like for you? What was that like turnaround point? Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's crazy because, you know, whenever I have these talks, it, it forces me to have to relive that. And, and I, when I relive it, it's like I'm thinking of a whole different person. Like, I, I feel like I've lived two lives, the one I'm living now and that one, because I was so different, you know, and um, I remember ending up in solitary confinement for three years this time. They put me back there because they said that I was a prison shot caller, meaning that I was in charge of things on the prison. And I had the authority to tell somebody to kill somebody if I wanted to. And when you have that power, um, they lock you up in the shoe, which is solitary housing unit and um, which is even deeper than prison itself. It's a deeper level of it. And you're locked up 24 hours a day. You stare at a wall. You're alone in a cell, cut off from even the prison. Um, and so I ended up there. And they told me I was going to be there for three years. And when I went back there, I saw guys that were back there for 20 years. And they had originally went in there for one year. And so they told me, like, yeah, you're not going to get out of here because they don't have to. They have their own laws. Um, and every year you have to go in front of a committee. And then they determine whether you can get out of there. And if they think that you're not ready, they don't have to let you so I felt like I was never going to get out. And so that's when I got to the point of suicide. Everything in my life caught up to me. All the things I did 
all the pain that my mother went through, all the people that I negatively influenced, it just hit me. And I felt like I wasn't doing nothing good on this earth. I was doing all bad. And I just was the point of being here. So um, I remember I was getting ready to um, to commit suicide and in solitary confinement. It's hard to commit suicide because they design it to where you can't do it easily because so many people do it. And so I had to plan it and wait for my opportunity, uh, which was going to be um, in three days from when I finally made the decision, I was going to you know, get a razor and kill myself um, because you have a, a window of opportunity to do that uh, when you shave. So, um, and I was going to do it. And within that time frame, uh, a chaplain came into my life and um, he called me to the door and he gave me the Bible and he told me to not give up. He told me that I had a purpose here and he challenged me to figure out what that purpose was. And that brief encounter and those brief words and then the way that he said it and the way that he looked at me, it, it got me through another night. It got me through another day to not give up. And then I took on the challenge and I really started to like read the Bible and I started to pick up other books and read and start to learn about psychology, start to study it. And in the process, I started to figure out how I ended up where I was at from this 13 year old, um, you know, that was doing before 13, playing baseball, going to Catholic school to now in solitary housing unit, ready to commit suicide. I was like, that kept me up at night trying to figure out how that happened. And so for three years, I studied every day and I read books every, I read a book a week. Um, and I just focused and worked on myself in solitary confinement for three years. And um, I, I, I transformed my life back there. And I knew I had to get out back to general population with that, which was a whole nother thing. And, um, but I did, and I walked out of there and I got stabbed two times because I told him I was done with that life. But I knew as painful as those stab wounds were, um, it felt good to know that that was it, that I was done. And so I stitched my wounds up and I, that's why I first started coaching was in prison. I started formulating groups in the chapel, um, and I started to work with lifers to help them get to that point where I was at. And we built together and we worked together and we had break, we had breakthroughs. And a lot of those men are free today. Um, and I walked out of prison four years later, early. I wasn't supposed to be out yet. So all this um, back then was never supposed to be possible. And so um, it's all a gift. And so that's why I do what I do now. Yeah. That's so incredible. That's like, first of all, you know, that, 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 that chaplain, you know, testified to you and gave you that, that hope and that spark, whatever, whatever it was, it, it, it inspired something that was already within you. That flame wasn't lost despite everything. And I think that really speaks to human resilience and our, our like desire to survive is like, there's so many points along that, that you could have given up. And that flame wasn't lost within you. Someone was able to ignite it. And then you decided to keep that flame going. Um, and when you decided to like, you're like, hey, I'm done. I've, I've changed my life. And then you're coming out of solitary confinement. And everyone knows you as this guy. And now you have to be this different guy. Um, obviously, like you said, you got stabbed a couple of times. At what point? Like, were they, did they finally just decide like, Hey, we're going to leave this guy alone because he's 
he's just not about that life anymore. And now we're just going to leave him alone. Like, what was that transition like you for? And did you have a, a, a moment where you're like, oh, I'm done now. And they're actually, you know, they're going to leave me alone. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's, it's crazy because I uh, just going back to the chaplain, I never saw him again after that. Um, but I think that all of like me, you like were that chaplain, like the chaplain that that man in that moment who he was for me is like who we are now for the people that listen to us and our our viewers and stuff like that um and so and everybody listening you can be the same thing um in somebody else's life and we all are you know go through our own um transformation and when you transform your life there has to be sacrifices right there has to be change Right. This is not going to be the same. And so I knew when I stepped out of solitary confinement, things were not going to be the same. And in that environment, you know, the sacrifice potentially was my life. But I always knew that if I died, at least my mother could bury me a man who changed his life and committed to doing right. Even before I had the opportunity to do it, I was okay with that. I became at peace with that. And so I stuck to that. And when I went out there and when they when I told them, you know, the life that I was ready to live. And they knew I was serious about it. You know, some agreed and some didn't. And the ones that didn't were like, okay, we're going to see if you're serious because if we stab you, the old you is going to, you're going to try to stab us back or you're, we're going to, we're going to bring that beast out of you again. And so people will try to test you when you change. Like when you transform your life, negative people will try to pull you out of that. Like if you overcome addiction, there's going to be people that try to pass you the bottle, whatever it is. But then you have to reevaluate your life and say, like, okay, I need now that I'm grown, I need to cut off old people and get new people. So that's what I did. I cut off the old people and I started to find new people that wanted to change, and my change inspired them to change. And so now that became my circle of influence. And together we felt stronger. And so we were able to grow. And so I knew there was going to be repercussions and stuff. I already knew that. But when you change and you're like, that's it, and you're like at that point nothing is going to stop you. And so that's where I was at at that point in my life. And, and, and you know, um, and it worked out. So that's amazing. I think that's yeah. a testament to your leadership too, because, you know, it's one thing to change your life for you. Right. And I think that's like a massive hurdle considering, you know, how many years of conditioning you had to live your life a certain way. So then you make this decision, like, no, I'm I'm going to change my life now. But then to decide that you're going to pass that message on to really in a place where it's not really what you do, <laughs> like, you are you know, yeah. it's not like a prisoner's aspiration, like, oh, I'm going to hold these like um, yeah. groups and we're going to like build each other. And I think that that's that's really amazing. So I, I want to acknowledge you for that. Um, so, you know, I think sometimes when people hear stories like this, they think it's like Oh, something that happened to somebody they don't know, which is why I really wanted to have this conversation with you. And then the other thought is like, oh, it happened so long ago. And this wasn't long ago for you. How long ago did yeah. you come out of prison? Uh, just about two years ago. Like so been about two years. Yeah. 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 Like that. That's so that's so crazy. And this whole time, you know, you've been like on your mission on your mission. And um, that's why I invited you to come to the Academy, talk to my girls and to do this interview, because I feel like, you know, parents, it's like, we always learn the lesson, like 
uh, way after the fact or when it's too late. Um, And I had this realization, like with my kids, it's like the way that I raised my daughter, it's like so different from the way that I raised my son, because I've grown so much as a person. And what my intention really was for this episode was that you could share your experience and share your wisdom so that parents could be like, take a reflection on like, oh, what is my relationship like with my kids right now? Like, how am I managing myself so then I can be truly supportive for them? Like, am I, you know, helping them grow? Am I helping them build their resilience? Am I truly preparing them for life? And, you know, that saying that they say, like, everybody's life is either a warning or an example. And I think what's really unique about your story is that it's both, you know, you didn't have the support that you needed. And it took you down a path that probably wasn't was not your dream life so that's the warning but what's really cool is that you were able to turn that around and not just turn it around for you but then deciding to make an impact in the world is really the example um yeah what what's been the hardest thing for you since coming out like I, I would imagine that even though like okay freedom is what everybody wants but what has been the most challenging thing for you yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, I think the most challenging thing for me is not being able to help as many people as I want to help. And I mean, that's what I do every day if I can, but I always feel like I have to do more. And it's just because like, I'll never do enough on this earth to make up for the wrong that I did. And I'll never even like try to um compare the two, you know, because of the ripple effect. I know that my negative actions back in the old day caused the ripple effect that spreads far beyond, you know, what we could really see um, as far as pain and loss and hurt and all that. Um, So every day I deal with that by trying to now help others and spread that ripple effect of good. So help a young person, you know, get their life together and get back on track and overcome suicidal ideation, overcome addiction, coaching them through it, through my experiences and and reliving my experiences with them and showing that they can do it, all these things and working with adults and helping them understand that they can, you know, be a catalyst for change. And this is how you can do it because this is what worked for me. Um, But it's never enough. I always feel like I need to do more. And so that's been hard because um, I'm, you know, one person and, but I feel like that I have this dream and this goal that's like, you know, requires a hundred people. And so I think that it's just going to take for me to continue to work on myself and realize that um, even if I help one person, that's something, right? I don't have to help a million people. If I help a hundred people in my lifetime, those hundred can go on to help another hundred and it spreads out and I'm doing my mission. So um, that's been hard because I want to so bad, but I can't. And Besides that, nothing else is hard because of my perspective on life. Even things that regular people would seem as hard, I don't look at it as hard. Um, mm-hmm. I actually look at them as gifts and opportunities that I never thought that I would have ever in life. And um, a lot of people can't relate to that. So that's kind of hard because, you know, you know, me and my uh, my girlfriend, and you know, like when things happen in her life and she gets down, I tell her things like, well, look at it this way. And she's like, well, not everybody's as positive as you, right? But I get it because she didn't go through what I went through. So I have to be empathetic toward that. 
um, and get and understand that not everybody has been to hell and back. Not everybody has had another chance at life, but don't let that stop you from like every single day, like living your best life and being grateful and really appreciating the people in your life in those moments, because they could be gone like that. And so I have that every day, all day, every second of the day. And so that's a lot, you know, when you have and you're constantly thinking that. So those are the challenges, you know, of when you when you change and you come from such a dark place, um, you have this mindset to look at everything differently that most people don't. And so it makes you kind of like alone in the world uh, until you find great people like you who understand. And that's why, like, I'm in this world and I, I'd make these these friendships because I know we know we 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 understand. And so uh, that's why I'll do this for the rest of my life. Oh, I freaking love yeah. it. And I think, yeah. you know, your desire to serve people is it's so amazing. And that feeling of like, oh, everything, like no matter what I do, it's not going to be enough. I just want to add a different perspective, you know, as someone who cares about you as a person, appreciates everything that you're doing, the negative impact and that ripple effect that you had was a result of your pain. And you didn't really have a lot of options. And now that you're doing this intentional, like you've already seen the impact that you've had in people, you know, I've given you feedback from some of the girls, even in, in my academy, where someone's husband is just happening to listen in and then they order a book and now he's the one that's reading it and it's like and they've got kids and like you think about that impact and how that's going to um create that ripple effect I think that that what you're doing is, is amazing and I can totally um resonate with the whole like when you've been through a lot you have this level of resilience and you just have to um know how to relate to people that don't necessarily have that but that you're always going to be that light you know, like even for your yeah. girlfriend, you're going to be that like, she'll be like, how the heck does he even like manage all of that? And that's so inspiring for her because that's going to help her to elevate as well. So Carlos, yeah. I appreciate you so much. I love this conversation. I know that like our listeners are going to get so much from it. I personally got so much from it. And, um, you know, I'm always going to aspire to be the best parent that I can be for my kids. And yeah, just thank you for all your wisdom. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. If you love this episode, please share it with someone. And if you're a longtime listener, it would mean the absolute world to me if you would rate and review this show on iTunes. I love you so much and I can't wait to connect with you on the next episode. And remember, it's not only possible to have it all, it is your birthright. <laughs>